Father, we're grateful that you have met us this morning again in the gospel. Your mercies are new every day. And you come to us again and again by the Spirit and your Son. And you refresh our hungry and needy souls. And we are hungry and needy. And this morning, Lord, as we spend time in these obscure and minor prophets, I pray that you will give those who are here to hear hearts and minds to understand. And for the one who's speaking today, we pray that in your mercy you would let him be clear and, um, and humble, Lord. So we're needy. We're all in that position this morning. And we're also filled with joy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, we're doing big themes in, in the book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. Last week, we began by spending some time in, in that signal book of Hosea. Um, and I do want today to try to make sure that I leave a little bit of time for questions. My father, I, was with, I was at a funeral in Florida a few weeks ago in the car with my dad. And my father uh, said to me, um, I listened to your stuff online at the cathedral. I said, oh, really? I said, well, you know, give me some, uh, what'd you think? And he said, I thought it was fine. And I said, well, you know, give me some critical feedback. He said, no, I thought it was fine. I said, Dad, critical feedback, come on. He said, all right. And he was ready. He was ready. (laughs) And he said, "Um, here's my critical feedback for you. If you tell the people at the beginning of the lesson that you're going to save time for questions, do it. Um, And uh, I said, oh, I said, did I I do that, Dad? He said, you didn't just do it once. You did it every week that I listened to. Um, so, Dad, if you're listening to this, I, I took your, child, your admonition. Um, so I will try to save some time because um, th- th- these, are, these are murky waters. This is, this is deep water. When we get into the minor prophets, there's a strangeness to them. It's not the kind of language that we normally use. It's like you have to get your sea legs a little bit when you get into these, into these books. And they're not minor. That's what St. Augustine called them, the minor prophets. But they're not minor in the sense of being less to than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They're just minor because they're smaller. But their collective force is something that actually is rather palpable. Um, And so this morning what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time talking about the issue of repentance and the theme of repentance that we find um, in the Book of the Twelve, in the Minor Prophets. There's a repeated term that shows up again and again and again in the Prophets, and it's this word, the Hebrew word is shuv. Um, it's, it's return, turn again, turn to the Lord, turn back uh, to the Lord. And so I'd like to do that by looking a little bit this morning at the ending of Hosea and a little bit this morning at Joel. Let me say something to you quickly, and I'm still trying to get my own mind around this issue, um, but a little bit about the way in which the minor prophets are structured. Um, and we've talked a little bit about this before, I think, in other classes um, but but I, I know that people sort of come in and out on these classes. And so just a, a few comments about the way in which the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, and even that language, Book of the Twelve, might be new to you. Um, but by the second century B.C., Ben Sira was referring to the Minor Prophets as the Twelve. So you have a recognition very early in the collected life of these prophetic books that, yes, You can read Hosea and Joel and Amos on their own as discrete witnesses, and we should do that. But there's also a kind of intentionality that one will find if you begin to press a little bit at seeing how these books have been fitted together into a a unified corpus, uh, 
the, the, the image that I like to use is a multi-voice choir that's singing four-part part harmony or something like that. Now, so they're singing the same libretto, but they're singing it in different ways with different notes and different registers being, uh, being spoken and sung. So how does that work? Well, one of the issues we sort of began to look at last week was why is Hosea at the beginning? If Amos is an older book, why is Hosea at the beginning? It's that way in all of the collections that we have, both in the Greek translations and the Hebrew, trans- and the Hebrew manuscripts. Why? And the reason, I think, is because Hosea sets us out on a trajectory. The, the major issues that we're going to find throughout the whole, the red threads that we'll find throughout the whole of the Minor Prophets, we find in, in seed form and, and actually fully bloomed form in the book of Hosea. But Joel is a real juggernaut. Most scholars agree, um, not everyone, but most scholars agree that Joel is a post-exilic book. Whereas Hosea, Amos, Micah, these are all pre-exilic 7th century prophets, or actually 8th century prophets. So why then is Joel placed where it is? I think it's actually a really good question to wrestle with what Joel is doing. It's, it's a significant enough question that one scholar by the name of Jim Nagalski has argued that Joel is the literary anchor of the whole of the Book of the Twelve. Right Now, I'm, I'm not, I had to think through that some more, but that's his argument. And the reason why is something like this, I think, theologically. Hosea, it's kind of bad news, isn't it? Remember all this Lo-Ami, Lo-Ruhamah, Jezreel? And then you go and, and, the, and the wife is bought back and the children are redeemed. You're, you will now be my son. You will be my people. But you have a real emphasis in the book of Hosea on the judgment of God on the northern kingdom. And just to kind of give us a little historical perspective on this, after 722 B.C., the northern kingdom no longer was. Right. So, so the kind of prophetic word that you have from Hosea to the northern kingdom, it took hold. Right? They, they, they're gone. Tiglath-Pileser, followed by Sargon II, they came through. And, and, and Samaria, the northern kingdom, they're gone. Right? And then when you jump to Amos, and I don't know if I, I've mentioned this before, but just to give you a sense of what happens in the first six books of the Minor Prophets, you have Hosea, this is, would be a horrible quiz to give, wouldn't it? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And the way in which those function is, at least in the first six, northern prophet, southern, northern, southern, northern, southern. They work that way. So you have Hosea, northern prophet. Then you have Amos. He's a northern prophet. And if you want to get, if if you're looking for warm, fuzzy feelings in your Bible reading this week, avoid Amos. If you're looking for, you know, kind of go get them boy kind of reading, you know, go to the Psalter or somewhere else. But Amos is a really hard book. There's, there's not, there is hope in Amos, but you've have, you have to look real hard for it. Um, for three transgressions, yea, for four will I come after my people. right? And then and what you have are all these nations, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. They're all bad. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah, they're all bad. And then all of a sudden, the prophet is talking about Israel and Judah. Uh-oh. right? We're in the mix with those group, that group as well. So you have some really difficult stuff there in Hosea and Amos. And Joel is situated right between these two, I think in a way to hold our hand and to give us a bit of an interpretive guide to say, listen, 
What happened in Hosea and Amos, the word that's there, needs to be put in the right frame. And that is Joel chapter 2. If you turn to the Lord with all your heart, if you come back to Him, you will meet Him in in His grace and His mercy. So I want to read Joel 2 to you because I think it's at the center of this Hosea, Joel, Amos situation that's going on. Verse 12, Yet even now, says the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, because He's gracious, He's merciful, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love, and He relents from punishing. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here's the challenge in the middle of Joel. The challenge is return to the Lord because if you do turn to the Lord in repentance, that shooving, that turning, that looking to Him and recognizing our need and dependence on Him and Him alone, if you do that, you will always meet a God whose disposition toward you is one that's marked by grace and mercy. That is, that's at the core of the prophetic message. When you turn to Him with all your heart, you will again and again meet a Lord, a, a Father, whose disposition toward you is one of grace and of, and of, and of mercy. Um, so this is right here at, at the heart of this. And you remember this question here, who knows, maybe He will relent. Now here's a little, you don't have to answer this, but think in your mind. Can you think of a place maybe in the Minor Prophets where the answer to that question is revealed in an actual story? Using that same exact language. It's a very unfair question. Um, Jonah. Isn't it something that when you come to the book of Jonah, you see the king of Nineveh on... By the way, let, let's just put that in perspective. Really bad guy. right? Real bad guy. The king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh, is saying these exact words. Let us repent. Let us turn to the Lord. Who knows? Maybe he'll relent from the evil that He's planned toward us. And what happens? God does it. There's an actual narrative account in the book of the Twelve itself, in the Minor Prophets, illustrating what Joel is saying. And, and, the, and the striking thing, that by the way, this is really good news for you and for me. The striking thing is that's happening for the nations, for the Goyim, for people like you and me, the non-Israelites. And here they are repenting and God meets them in His grace and mercy. And you remember how Jonah responds, don't you? I don't like that too much. right? Uh, we, I was wrestling with this with a group Tuesday night at Beeson uh, at, at a lay academy class where here Jonah is really pitching a fit in a way um, because, his, uh, because his plant gets withered away. And God says, are you so worried about your plant that you're not worried about these people? I mean, it's a real challenge to those who are protective about the grace of God. Right? We think we have a corner on the market on, God, on God's grace. So we see this here. Now, a couple other things, and I want to look at the end of Hosea, and, and we'll talk a little bit. What I think is interesting about Joel is in some sense, Joel is also an exposition. It's a fuller elaboration on the call to repentance that we find in the end of Hosea. And that's what I want to look at with you primarily this morning is the ending of Hosea, chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, because you have stumbled on account of your iniquity. 
Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And in some sense, the book of Joel is an exposition, a fuller elaboration on what that will, what that will look like. But I wanted to, to, you to hear this because it so fits. Um, it so fits with the liturgical character of our worship. That's what I want us to sort of sit with a little bit. What's going on here in Hosea, the kind of words that Hosea brings to bear on what it looks like to return to the Lord really has liturgical cash value. Right? I mean, think about even what we just came from in morning worship and the way in which we pray, the way in which our prayers are ordered as we move to the table. Think about this in light of what Hosea says right here. Verse 2, so he's telling them to return. Shuv, put your face toward the Lord. Why? Because, you're, because of your iniquity, because of your sins. Verse 2, now listen to this. Take words with you. Right? This is an interesting kind of admonition. When you go to the Lord, make sure you've got some words that you're ready to take with you. And return to the Lord and say to Him, and hear the words, take away all guilt. And then there's another command. Accept that which is good, and we will offer the fruit of our lips. Now, this is a tricky verse, and it actually is a verse that I think, and and I need to be careful how I say this, but we're in a classroom setting. I I actually think the Hebrew helps a little bit here, because you have two imperatives, you have two commands that are given, and here are the commands. Number one, take words with you. And number two, accept. So take words. Number two, accept. So what are the words that we are to take? This is the word. Take away all our guilt. Those are the words. John Calvin. I was reading Calvin on this text this week in preparation. And it's really something here that Calvin says the words that we take to God, our own words, have to correspond to his own word. In other words, our words correspond uh, to His Word. And the words that they're bringing here, take away all our guilt, flow right from the prophetic injunction one verse previous. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Why? Because of your iniquity, you need to return to the Lord. So when you return, you are confessing. Isn't this what confession is? Confession is saying, what you say is right. Right? My, My character, my condition, where I am is correct. I can try to run and hide. I can sugarcoat it. I can paint it in a different way if I want to. But the truth of the matter is, I'm iniquitous from top to bottom. I I think Dean Limehouse this morning talked about being totally depraved, right? That that kind of language isn't necessarily saying that you're as bad as you could be. Was it Aunt Helga? Helga? Hell, yeah. It's It's not that people who are totally depraved means that they're really, really, really bad. Because you have people that you know who aren't really, really, really bad. But they're still totally depraved. That means every part of their being, their thinking, their willing, their affections, their emotion, the totality of what it what the totality of what it means to be human, a person, has been infected and affected by sin. All of it. My thinking's been affected by sin. The way in which I emote to people has been affected by sin. And my ability to will and choose has been affected by sin. Which, by the way, to my mind, shapes theologically a lot about how we talk about free will. Well, don't get too nervous. You can ask a question if you want. Okay. Um, So, 
What do we have here? We have this confession, our words, that align with His words. And I know I've said this to you all before, and in some sense this is speaking to the choir, but my colleague Lyle Dorset, who's an Anglican priest, often says to people who fuss about the liturgy, he says, well, tell me again, I just need to get this clear. What part of the liturgy don't you like? Is it the, uh, the praying part or the Bible part? Which part? Is it the first one or the last one? <laughs> I think it's, that's what I appreciate. I mean, my wife and I were sort of giving ourselves glances this morning in worship because, again, the liturgy that we, that we enter into together corporately um, aligns itself with His Word. Take words with you when you go. What are the words? Take away all of our guilt. We're sinners. We start with confession. That's where we begin, a confession about who God is and a confession about who we are. That's, that's, that's getting out of the gate, point A, starting A. But then look at what he says. Accept that which is good. Now, I think some of these translations get a little bit funky here. Um, that's not a technical theological term. Um, but they get a little bit weird here because they start with the quotation mark at take away our iniquity and I'm not sure where that the quotation mark ends. Oh, all the way at the end. I don't think that's the case. I think what the words are there to take with them are take away our iniquities, period, quotation mark. And then there's another challenge that comes, and that is accept the good. That's not a challenge and a command to God <laughs> to accept our good. That's not what it is. It can be read that way, but I actually do not think the text will allow that. The text is claiming for us to accept that which is good. Calvin says this is the recognition in our worship, in our repentance, that Christ is for us. That's the good news of the Gospel, isn't it? Christ is for you. His disposition toward you is with lips turned upwards. Right? He is smiling toward His people. He he sings over His people. The Father sings over us. Why? Because we are in Him. We're in Christ. We're recognizing who we are. We're moving once again toward Him. Take words with you. Accept that which is good. What is it that we're to accept? The blessing of forgiveness. It's why the only human action that really works in the Gospel that then propels everything else is faith. It's faith, isn't it? It's a confession and a belief that God is who He is, that we are who we are, and what God said is true. It's faith. It's belief. It's belief in the, in the finished and the complete work of Jesus and the effective character of that work on our, on our lives and relationships. The blessing of forgiveness. And then look what it says. And we will offer the fruit of our lips. Literally there, it's we will offer the calves, right, of our lips. The sacrifices of our lips. This is very much in line with what we find in the book of Hebrews. We don't bring sacrifices anymore of bulls and goats. What do we bring? We bring sacrifices of praise. We bring words that praise and lift up the glory and the goodness and the majesty of God because of what He's done for us. He's moved toward us. He did not wait for us to move toward Him, but He sent the Son into the far country to bring us back. Right. And what, what's the response that we have from that? It's, it's praise. It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude that comes off of our mouths and is reflected once again 
in, in our lives. Praise and thanksgiving. And then look at this next verse. Verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We're not going to ride upon horses. We will say no more our God into the works of our hands because in you the orphan finds mercy. So what is he saying here? He's saying we're no longer going to say that we're going to trust in our military might, our political machinations, and we're not going to trust in the gods that we make in our own hands. Which, by the way, takes on a metaphorical character within the prophets. Calvin was on to something when he said that there's an idol factory under all of our hearts. That, that, that's not just a throwaway line. That's, that's true. When you think about things that we desire, desiring is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to desire. But when desires turn into demands that then become clenched fists, all of a sudden we're in idolatry land now. The, again, the, the sermon we heard this morning I think really uh, ties into that. Uh, okay, I'm looking at the clock. So we confess. So what do we see here in this? Turn to the Lord because you're iniquitous. Take words with you. What are the words? Please remove our guilt. Then accept that posture of blessing, of forgiveness, which results in offering the fruit and the praise of thanksgiving and gratitude. The turning itself is an act of faith. It's a confession with our mouths and our lives that what God says about Himself and His ways, that, they, that that is true. And He meets us again and again with His mercy. Um, it's why I like the fact that we confess our sins every week. And again, it's easy to sort of sit on kind of a posture and say they don't do this. But, but there are a lot of churches that don't do that as a regular part of their coming together. But what I like about our confessing our sins every week when we do so with rent hearts, not, I mean, God wants the whole person here, not just the words off of our mouths, but that flow from hearts that are being ripped, you know, rent as well. That, that, that act of confession, that act of repentance where we come again and again is a recognition that we are sinners constantly in need of the mercy of God. Our righteousness, right, and you hear this around here a lot, our righteousness is alien to us. It's something that we have because we are in Christ. It's because of what we are, where we are, located positionally in Him. I'll have to give props here to my mother, right? My mother, if I heard this one time as a child growing up, I, I must have heard it over a thousand times. My mother would remind me, Mark, remember your position in Jesus. She would say it again and again to me. Remember who you are in Jesus. Now, I think part of that was a bit of her motherly and concern for my, I guess, fragile psyche. I don't know. Um, you know, kids can be mean, real mean. Um, and so I think that part of it was, you know, remember who you are in Jesus, right? But the hold on that, I think, has really been quite powerful, I think, in shaping the way in which I view life in the gospel, um, which flows from, by the way, Paul's language. This is his favorite phrase, in Christ, in Him. We're in Him. We are located there already. The fullness of your righteousness is in Him. But can I say something too about sanctification? We need to distinguish between justification and sanctification. They're not the same. I think that is the Roman Catholic error, right? But at the same time, we need not drive a wedge between them. Justification, our righteousness is completely in Him. It's an alien righteousness. But I think sometimes we tend to view 
this sanctification thing in a deistic way. Like God starting the world and He gets it going and then He steps back and lets the world do its thing without any involvement in the complexes of that reality. But the truth of the matter is I think sometimes we treat salvation that way. Justification is God's work. There's the deistic part. He gets things going. And now, do it, right? I don't know if you've seen that Newhart clip where he's counseling this woman. And she comes in and he has five minutes with her. She says, he says, you have five minutes. And she says that she's scared of being, you need to YouTube this. She said, I'm scared of being in closed rooms because I have a, a deep fear of being locked in a box and, and not being able to get out. And he said, okay, well, here's my counsel for you. It's going to be fast. Um, you have five minutes. Stop it. <laughs> and uh, she, she said, well, you, is there more than that? He says, no, it's, it, what you're doing is crazy. Just stop it. Um, and then the thing goes on, and, she's, and he says, well, you can go now. And she said, well, I want my full five minutes. And it, it's, it's quite fun. Right? Um, so so, so I, I do think we tend to view it that way, right? G- Jesus, you got your... Um, for lack of a better term, you got your get-out-of-hell free card, right? Um, so uh, now go, go make it happen. And we treat sanctification and our holiness as something that's kind of up to us and our justification as something that's up to Him. Look, can, can, let me just put this to you, in the, I, I think, the way in which Paul would put this to you. And that is, your righteousness is an alien righteousness and your sanctity is an alien sanctity as well. Your holiness is an alien sanctity. That you have in its fullness, by virtue of your being in Christ. It's a faith thing. So that when we return, right, because this is really one of the things I wanted to lay out this morning. Repentance, we tend to think of repentance as, you know, I'm doing something bad and I need to stop it. That's part of it. I mean, I don't want to in any way downplay that. But repentance really is a mode of being. We live lives that are repentant and faithful, living in faith, that turn again and again. Why? Because we have to believe. We need faith, which is the gift of God, to believe that all of that is in Him. There are no human achievements in the Gospel. None. Our righteousness is in Him, and our holiness is in Him. And when it's happening... Right? Because we live in the tension of the ages. We live in it. We live in the kingdom of God, and we live in the anticipation of the kingdom of God. What, what theologians call the already and the not yet. We're, we, we're caught in that tension. Or the way Luther described it, we are at the same time righteous, and we're at the same time sinner until the coming of Christ. And if we can push this a little bit, I think we would also say we are at the same time sanctified and the same time sinner until the coming of Christ. So that we turn again in faith to believe in that eschatological future, that what God says, what He declares about us, the relationship that He has resolved, that He has brought peace to, that we believe that that's true and real. And we walk into that in actions of obedience and faith. So that our actions begin to correspond in that kind of mood. It's a profound thing. No no one gets to say, look what I did. What they get to say is, here it is. Who I am in Christ by His mercy and His grace showing itself again, peeking its head through again, that forces us to Him and and not to ourselves. Repentance, turning. It's something that we do in our liturgy every week. It is a gift that's given to us 
to turn our face again, once again, away from ourselves and to that other one who holds the fullness of our righteousness and our holiness, which then affects lives of gratitude and praise that move on from that. Rend your hearts, not your garments, said Joel. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Take words with you. Okay. Living up to my word now. Let's let's bat this around a little bit. Sure. One of the things that has always intrigued me, and I think it's St. Paul, and I, I think it's Romans, but it's definitely in one of the epistles, is it makes a big deal about the flesh. When I say the flesh, I don't mean just skin and bones, but the flesh in the depraved sense. That the flesh is in us. He's talking to Christians. Uh, unequivocally, without any doubt, the flesh is in us. And then interestingly, he goes right on to say, but you are not in the flesh. You are in Christ. So the flesh is in us, but we are not in the flesh. You are in Christ. And I think this is exactly what you're talking about. That's one of the most profound contrasts that yeah. I think that it lifts up in the epistle. I don't know if you want to comment on that. or. or yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. So some of you grew up in a, in, in a world similar to the world I grew up in, um, where this flesh-spirit language that you have in, uh, in, in, in Paul was kind of treated like black dog, white dog, you know both barking at each other inside. You know, you're in the spirit and you have the flesh and they're fighting over one another. I'm not sure that really gets at the dynamic that's at play within the Pauline logic. And again, um, for lack of a better term, he's thinking eschatologically. He's thinking about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God upon us, right? So when I think what you're getting at there, Dean Limehouse, is really another way of articulating um, Luther's symbol that we're at the same time righteous and just because we are in the flesh. That means we're still in this. We're not in the kingdom of God in the fullness yet. Our relationships are still broken and marred by the reality of sin, right? So we live in the flesh. We live in that world. But at the same time, we are in Christ fully, completely now and in the future. And I think it's really a future look that tells us where your primary identity is. I've said this in here before, but again, it's, it's a real, I think it's a paradigm shift in some ways, and it's worth repeating again and again. The Mark Genelette that you see before you right now is not the real Mark. It's a shadow, a broken, sinful shadow of the real Mark that's safely hid in Jesus that I'm anticipating at the fullness when I will see him as he really is. That, that's the real, and by the way, that's the real you too. You're there. And I'm already safely in Him. And that's, that's, who, where, that's where my humanity safely rests. That's why Jesus is the humanizing human. He shapes for us what humanity is and puts us in that, in that, in that future place. So yes, I think that really taps into it. I mean, or, or in Galatians. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? So there's, there's no self-achievement. Yeah. Uh, how are we to understand in the liturgy when we do the weekly confession of sins and say, forgive us all that is past, and then we add, and may we hereafter lead a righteous and sober life. And I always think, yeah, next week I'm going to come back and uh, yeah. say, well, I, yeah. uh, that prayer wasn't quite answered, you know. So why do we, why do we implore God that we're going to, that hereafter, like there's going to be some great change, I mean, the language sounds like that. 
and yet uh, we realize we're going to be back next week. But how do we understand that uh, that verbiage in the literature? Yeah. I mean the literature. Yeah. I was thinking about that this week, actually, and that's a good question. And what I think that what I think the liturgical dynamic that you have there is something that actually reveals the reality of our spiritual dynamic. Um, that we come again, we confess, and then that confession, by the way, is a resolution. Right? I, I was reading, um, well, a colleague of mine put me onto this, but I was reading the 1662, is that, the, that, that's, that right? Um, the prayer that is offered there before communion. Google that. Um, it's a strong admonition in this way to think about a resolution of life, right? In other words, to say, yes, by your grace, by your grace, I'm freed, I'm confessing my sins, and also by your spirit, I hope to live into what you called me to be. I mean, to think about it from a Pauline perspective, the challenge is be who you already are. That was the challenge. Yeah. Um, but I think the dynamic that we have is a, is a dynamic that recognizes instead of and this is where I differ a little bit from my own Calvinist and Reformed tradition where I was trained. They tend to view this as progressive. You're kind of moving upward, 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 right? But I don't know. There's probably a part of that. But the reality is I think we know ourselves too well to trust too much in that. And I also take great comfort, I think, from the Apostle Paul at the end of his life in, the, in Timothy saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, here's a self-recognition, not... You know, I've gotten a lot better over the years. I don't swear as much or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, but I'm the chief of sinners. So it's not, it can't be that kind of dynamic. So instead of seeing it progressive, recognizing that what the great Reformed theologians, which I think is our heritage, what the great Reformed theologians refer to as mortification and vivification, a putting to death and a making alive, that that, di- that dynamic is a constant dynamic of the Christian life. That has to be repeated again and again. So, our mortification, putting to death of sin, what God has already put to death in Christ, making that actualized, mortification, and then being made alive in Him, that that is a dynamic that happens again and again and again. And the prayer that we pray every week, I think, captures that dynamic actually rather well. I'm confessing my sins, I'm resolved. Mortification, vivification. Next week, Mortification, vivification, again and again. Instead of progressive, I'm getting better, better, it's the reality that the gospel comes to us in Jesus again and again and again and again. That's how I'm trying to think through it. You want to press back? Well, uh, yes. Do. Do you ever feel a little discouraged, though, (laughs) saying, hereafter I'm going to do these great things? That, that, That is where faith is. I really believe it. I mean, I think about it the way in which I deal with my children. Um, I mean, just this morning, I, you know, I, I exhibited my own lack of sanctification. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 I look at them and I think, you know, I, ha- I have to parent them in faith. You know, this is it's where faith comes into play, where we believe, number one, that we are fully who we are already in Jesus. And number two, that we trust that Christ will, by His mercy and His strength, allow us to do those good works that He's called us to do, not for self-glory, not for human achievement. That's been tried and done and it doesn't work. But for the recognition of living a life of gratitude that points away to say, what you say is, is true. And, and this is something I didn't get at this morning, but I, I wanted to, and I'm glad you're pressing me on this. 
And the act of faith, too, is believing that what God says, what He wants us to walk into, the actions that He wants, the obedience that He wants to follow from our freedom, is better. That's where faith comes in, too. It's better. That, that, you know, that, that's what I think about even with, from a parenting standpoint. But think about it from ourselves. We hear what Jesus calls us to. We see, what he, we see the, 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 word of the, the commandments of God. And it's a real act of faith, I think, to say, you know what? What God says, walking in that way, is the best. It's not the Father in heaven slapping us on the hand. It's, it's the Father saying, walk in this way, because in this way is, this is, this is life. This is the uh, of life. Would you say it feels like effort? Yes, and let me be clear on this. It's the grace of God. Yes, and let me be clear on this. There is human action and effort involved. I think, but again, that's only made possible because of the interior work of Christ that has freed us to do that. But think about what Paul says, right? Um, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, because He's the one who's working it out in you. That's exactly the dynamic of Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and 3. So would you disagree with Luther when he said, love God and do as you please? I've always heard that. I've never seen that. Um, I've heard it attributed to Augustine. I've never seen it. Um, But I think there's probably something right there. I think the instincts of that is right. Why? Because the love of God, right, shapes us for our own desires and affections to want to love what God loves. So there's a sense in which the love of God leads to things that please Him. We can lead lives that are pleasing to Him. Listening to this makes me think of, uh, is it 2 Corinthians where where, um, Paul talks about beholding God with unveiled faces? Is that that 2 Yes, 3, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking about the whole chapter and group of chapters where he keeps going back to that image. And... But that, that one passage where he says, we, you know, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, uh, and then we're being transformed mm. into that same image, yes. makes me think um, that the sanctification part is not, you know, anthelgification. It's not becoming sort of righteous humans before the law, but it's something bigger and almost harder to comprehend than that. This is, you know, we're being transformed into the image of God, the reflection of God himself, you know, not good Aunt Helga, uh, but the the veil has been removed, the, the sort of law filter that says, you know, you're not uh, worthy uh, has been removed, that's accomplished, and that this transformation is ongoing. Um, I don't know if that yeah. um, is right or if it really fits with what you're saying. But I think it does. I'm, this is a very helpful phrase, and I think it's also why our corporate worship is so important. We are involved in eschatological now every time we come together to worship it's, it's as if the, you know we're, it's, a, it's a, um, a microcosm of what we will know at some point in its fullness that's why it's so important to come together in corporate worship um, that's, that's a part of the of the sanctity of the sanctifying reality you know. but again it's all gift I think we tend to think of and this is one thing that I do like about Calvin I think he's helpful on this is Calvin talks about both of these realities being gifts Justification, sanctification, these are gifts. They're not, none of them are human achievements. It's all a gift that he gives. But not necessarily painless to the human. And this is where, I mean, don't read Calvin too much because you'll start talking about discipline. And God, you know, remember Teresa of Avila, it's not, this is, you didn't want to hear this part, it's going to end up being badly. But <laughs> Teresa of Avila said, um, you know, 
God, God told her I hurt my friends, and that's why she said, that's why you have so few of them. <laughs> yeah. But he, he does, he, he, he disciplines us because he loves us. We, did you hear the William Cooper song this morning that they sang? I know you got to go, but I just William Cooper's great. Behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. I think that's that's the tension we're in. We got to go, right? Thank you. Thank you.